Good morning, marketers, and welcome to the Ify Market Podcast, brought to you by Mountaintop Data and Joto PR. We're the only podcast that markets the shit out of it. I'm Sky Cassidy, and today we'll be talking with Jeff Pedowitz of the Pedowitz Group about turnoff experiments. Jeff's the author of F the Funnel. It's a, a new way to engage customers and grow revenue. And he's also the president and CEO of the Pedowitz Group, and he hosts a weekly podcast, CMO Insights. Jeff, uh, thank you for coming on the show today. Hey, Sky. Thank you, man. It's a pleasure to be on here. So the title, Turn Off Experiments, we're talking in, in the context of B2B marketing always, of course, on, on this show, but Turn Off Experiments, can you give the listeners who are wondering, what is this, what, what's he talking about? What's a, what, what do you mean by Turn Off Experiments? I didn't write the article, but uh, the author had an interesting premise, which is if we turn off all of our advertising, uh, will customers still come? So basically, I guess into uh, does a tree if a tree falls in the forest, would, would anybody hear it? Oh, and- that's um, that's kind of how we were introduced. This, this guy had written an article on on Forbes, I believe. You had you had commented on it, and then something ensued where. Um, where we uh, were connected, uh, connected from there. So he has this turnoff experiment term. No, it's not my term. He, he coined it. Uh, you know, I didn't agree with all of his premises, which, uh, but, but the point about trying to be more disciplined and, and disciplined and nuanced and not bombarding customers with every piece of advertisement, every piece of content, I think that is on point. And I've always thought of us as marketers as being mad scientists. I mean, it's one big, uh, experimentation. We're constantly trying new things, new offers, new channels, new techniques to build meaningful engagements with our customers and build a better customer experience. So yeah, directionally he was right. I think that he was just advocating that it should be turned off completely and that there's something inherently wrong with advertising. That part I didn't agree with. Right. And I think I get, I mean, our whole theme of the podcast here is market the shit out of it. If you market, they will come. So but we did have a, a couple of weeks ago, we had a guest on talking about just quitting social media. And the, the idea is, and I love doing this as a, um, as kind of a thought experiment, what happens if you do? It's like always in life. If, okay, if I take this action, this is what I'm looking to happen. But what if I don't? And sometimes it's the same outcome, whether you do the thing or not. So why do the thing? And this is essentially saying, sometimes it's better to actually do nothing than something um, in marketing. Maybe sometimes we're over-marketing. You can piss off your audience. You know, Sending somebody an email, no problem. Sending 20 emails and you're saying, hey, I'm just experimenting with my content, man. That, that might irritate them a little bit. Unless we're all Gary Vee. You know, he seems to be able to do it <laughs> effortlessly. I don't even know if he sleeps, actually. Uh, but it, 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 part of it's the brand, part of it's the experience, part of it's the impression. Uh, I, I know some marketers and colleagues who've had tremendous success with blanket content, blanket campaigns across multiple channels. And I've known just as many that have been surgical um, and are really very nuanced and uh, deliberate about where they're placing their marketing dollars. I don't know that there's necessarily one right answer for everyone. Uh, being in the industry, everyone always talks about best practice, best practice, benchmark, best practice, but really all they can do is inform you, but they shouldn't be actually what you do because there's context for every single company your set of customers and how you operate. So right. you use it as a guide rail, but that doesn't mean that you have to do it that way. I, w- I would imagine some audiences, one email a day is too much. One outreach a day is too much. Some audiences, one a week is is too much, or some you can email three times a day and that's just part of their 
it depends Absolutely. on who you're reaching out to. Yeah. Yeah. There used to be this hard rule with uh, lead nurturing. Hey, you can only send something every two weeks and, you know, we don't want to um, mail our customer base more than twice a month. But if, honestly, in today's day and age, if it's good content and your customer values it and wants it, it can be multiple times per day, potentially. Uh, but email is one of many, many channels. Um, right. I think for my next book, I was thinking about writing, a, it's called contrarian marketing, like doing the opposite of what everyone else is doing. Well, you want to fish where they're not. I mean, everybody says, hey, this is such a great fishing hole. So there's a thousand people fishing it. That you can't even get your boat in the water. Right. Uh, Maybe yeah. that's not the best place to fish anymore. Uh, that means we're going to go back to faxing anytime soon. <laughs> Although you might get some people that respond <laughs> to a fax that wouldn't everybody otherwise. has a fax machine on how they could put it right next to their uh, roll phone, right? Um, but things, for example, like look at the resurgence and renaissance of the direct mail industry, particularly the multidimensional mailers. Um, in an age where everything is digital, uh, being able to send something thoughtful and meaningful uh, really makes a difference. And you know, that's like um, platforms like Ganges um, and PFL and, and uh, Sendoso and others are doing so well yeah. with that. Uh, so that's one example of contrarian marketing that really works well. Well, it even comes down to everybody's looking to automate and scale everything. And then they're looking to automate and scale personalization which is a, like you say, a, a bit um, of an oxymoron maybe, but um, I will look at things like people requesting to connect with me on LinkedIn, people sending me emails. And when I can tell it's a templated, like it's just a stamp this, but if they're just stamping this saying, hey, here's what we do if you want more information, then okay, that's just a straightforward. But the ones that turn me off is when I can tell it's an automated thing, but they're trying to fake like it's personal. You know, it's having the printer print your signature on something. I'm like, well, now you're better off just typing it because I, I feel like you're trying to trick me, which is insulting. Um, so there's and a I lot of a lot of that as well as the constant overt sales pitches. Like, hi, Jeff, my company is in the business of driving leads for a so-and-so company. Uh, <laughs> well, people are copying my profile message and they stick it right in the message. I'm like, really? Did you make any effort whatsoever? I, oh, you I, can I, put I, in your I'm, title or you can put asinine things and you'll see it show up in the pitch to you and like oh they're right. just grabbing this chunk of text and form filling it in but they're yeah, saying we love hey, that you're a master of the klingon empire and yeah. uh, you know, it's <laughs> like yeah it's, it's it's uh so they don't really yep. they don't really take the time to get to know you and that's why it, it, look no matter how you market whatever your product or service is whatever your business is in it's still about the customer it's still about the relationship and people want to be treated as people and they right. want to define on their terms how they want to be treated. So, so the general okay. idea is sometimes turning off your bombardment of the customer. So marketing just like a little bit of the shit out of them um, may be better than just the constant uh, bombardment. Uh, we call it friction over here in marketing. You're just creating so much friction. And some people, it's a lot easier to create friction with than others um, that it ends up becoming quite a negative. It does, you know, but maybe, maybe you can amend your title to market the loving shit out of them or something, just to <laughs> provide a little care and attention uh, into it. Well, you also have bombarded. Yeah, potentially more than one meaning. I'm looking at, at your book. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to ask the question on that. When you say F the funnel, are you talking about F the funnel in a sweet, loving way? Or is this like, as in, uh, is it a negative or a positive effing that you're looking to do to the funnel? 
while some while I understand the F word can be used in a variety of its announcements of its magic, but, uh, this is really meant to be uh, an, a negative challenge in the status quo, really meaning like, look, it's time to set the funnel aside as a model that we've used for 100 years to try and win customers because it really was about manufacturing, throughput, velocity. We don't give a shit about the customer. We just care about getting as many customers as we possibly can from the beginning to the end. Uh, and in today's day and age, when customers have so many different choices and options and we're equalized in a digital world, it's really got to be much more about the relationship and the buyer's mutual control. So I'm just advocating for a completely new model to, to stop thinking of the customer as a transaction and to think of them as a human being. So you're saying not even, you're not even saying make sweet love to the funnel. You're saying no. F it as in get rid of it, forget That's about the funnel. It. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm saying get, get rid of forecasting or get rid of pipeline or territory management or quota management or all traditional things we need to do to run the business. I, of course, we need those things. What I am saying, though, is instead of thinking as the, of the customer as a number that it needs to be moved from point A to point B to point C, let's think of them as a relationship that we could nurture, grow, improve, align with. And that over time, the true measure will be the lifetime value of the customer and how often they renew, right? That's, that's really what tells us if we're growing a healthy business or not. Right, right. Um, going back to the, um, the turnoff experiments uh, concept, when talking about that, are you specifically talking about the digital ad spend? Because that's what the article that, again, kicked us off on this. And I'll go ahead and throw it in the show notes on the show. It's not that important for our conversation, but maybe the listeners don't want to see it. Um, I believe that article was all about digital ad spend and the experiment of just completely turning off your digital ad spend. Or does this apply to all marketing in, in general? Again, it applies to all marketing. And frankly, you can apply it to your sales organization as well. It, it, it's really about turning on, turning off lots of different options. Think of it as a, your stereo sound system at your house that you probably won't anybody to touch, but you, right? But, but you still want to play around with it until you get that right sound, you know, turning up the bass, turning up the treble, playing around with the balance, the equalizer. It's the same thing with your marketing mix. And as time goes on, factors change. Um, and none of us are um, in a vacuum living in an independent world. Every time we do something, our competitors react and respond. They do something. Our customers do something. A new, a new competitor emerges. A trade association does something. So as that evolves, then we have to change the mix. Uh, look, when I started the company 14 years ago, there was a half dozen firms like mine in the world. And, and so from a marketing perspective, we didn't have to do shit. Like we didn't have to market the shit out of anybody. We just had to be, you know, right. do, a, do a good job. And then the vendors would just give us business. Well, you fast forward to today, there are thousands, tens of thousands of companies worldwide that do what we do. And right. so we do have to market uh, and we have to market intelligently. And there's a lot more choices in content. If I would have written an, uh, an article about lead management 10 years ago, I could guarantee you it would have been on the first page of Google because maybe two other people were writing articles on it. There was nothing else to find. Now... I have to come up with some kind of interactive video, a whole sequence, infographics, charts, content, just to promote it. And maybe, maybe I'll be able to get it on, on the first page because there's just so many people writing about the topic. So uh, marketing is always a balance of art and science. And right. You, I mean, some, you say the science part, and that seems like it, you'd mentioned earlier also, it's an experiment. And you have to remember in the experiment that part of that may include turning it off and seeing what happens, not just trying a bunch of different variations of it. It is. I mean, it's the science part, but it's still the art part too. I mean, 
there's you can't underestimate the power of brand and storytelling and marketing to make the human connection. That is still the most important thing. If there's no emotion, people don't buy, they don't get engaged. There's no passion around your product, no matter what your brand stands for. So that has to be there. But brand and storytelling and emotion without science fails also because it's an incredibly complex world now for us to reach our customers. So you do need the science to hypothesize, to test, to move money around to different channels and see what's gonna work. And what works for your neighbor might not necessarily work for you, just do the whole host of factors. That's why I've always been so against analyst firms that do benchmarking um, and say, this is the standard, right? Everyone converts at this funnel. Everyone does not convert at that, at that right. rate. It's impossible. The stats in my industry are, are terrible. Um, we provide data for marketing campaigns, lists. And so there's a lot of email marketing is what it was traditionally when we first started the company. Um, email was the big thing. And all the stats you can find out there about email marketing, the benchmarks are about consumer opt-in newsletter lists. So it's like, here's the people who signed up for LeBron James's newsletter. And here's the open rate. And here's the this rate and the that rate. Like, I'm sorry, but those rates do not apply to cold emails, business to business, or even just business to business newsletter. Like it's yes, they, they create these benchmarks for one situation that so many people don't fit. And then it, but it becomes this benchmark that people believe I'm supposed to be getting this result in, in their very different situation. Uh, it, it's so many um, advertisers and marketing firms are still married to impressions. It's such a worthless metric. Uh, it means nothing how many people have seen or have potentially have seen your ad. What matters is how many people convert and how many people buy. Right. And, and when you get back to turning off ads because of the potential for fraud also, uh, back in the day with affiliate stuff, with, with um, the digital ads, it's a lot better now, I believe. But there was a big problem with fraud if people were just looking at impressions because you're like, oh, I can get a bunch of proxies and send a million impressions to somebody, no problem. And I remember seeing um, there was a company that had made a virus and it was infecting people's computers, but it wasn't trying to steal credit card info or anything like that. All it was doing was driving people to the affiliate sites that they got paid to drive and they, they ended up finding like, what's going on with this virus? It's not really doing anything. Oh, it's defrauding these people who are buying this traffic. It's basically, it's, it was creating fraudulent traffic. So on the one side, it wasn't bad for the people who got infected. It was just, they were stealing millions of dollars in advertising traffic by, by driving these people because they're paying for impressions. Yeah. And unfortunately in marketing in every industry, there's always going to be some unscrupulous people that are going to take advantage of those of others, but there's also many, many more people that are going to do it honestly and, and will continue to build and put those protections in. And like you said, if you experiment, you can identify those. If you just say, oh, here's the benchmark. Wow, this is doing great. You absolutely can. And ultimately, no matter how big your company is, if you're paying attention, you can see what's working and not working, right? It can't, it's not going to hide forever. And if you really understand your data, it's going to, the data doesn't lie. Uh, and right. so, so that's a really big part of it. You have to understand it and analyze it. Now with lead attribution, back when you couldn't do that, you didn't know, uh, you know, the famous, oh, we just spend on all these spots and we don't know what works. So we keep spending on all of them. Now, when you can attribute back to the source, though, um, you can suddenly say, oh, this is where everything's coming from. And these places aren't. We see the same thing in data. We always tell people don't only do lead attribution for these campaigns or these, but 
when you have multiple data sources and everybody should, and you get a list from here and a list from there, you need to track where your sales are coming from list wise. So, you know, oh, this vendor appears to be giving us good stuff, but for some reason, none of their data leads to sales. And it's because, you know, maybe the contacts look good on the service, but none of those people are actually at the company. I think that's partially true. I think in B2C, where it's an individual transaction, self-serve, um, single source, either first touch, last touch, or even multi-touch attribution can be much more informative. In B2B, uh, we're seeing a move away by many companies to not do attribution anymore because uh, it doesn't work. And, and the, one of the reasons why is in B2B, most of us are selling to multiple buyers and multiple buyers are going through multiple journeys through multiple touch points. And so for the vast majority of us, when we sell to someone, that first lead gets converted, gets attached to the opportunity. Um, that person's activity is being associated. But what about the other seven, 10, 15 people? They might be in the marketing system, but we're not connecting all that activity back uh, to that opportunity. And then still about 40% of the clients that we work with initially don't even require their salespeople to attach the contact to the opportunity. So no matter what marketing is doing, there's no basic data connection there. So it's like trying to turn on the electricity in your house, but there's no power coming into the house. So you can put the yeah. switch on and off while you want. It's not going to do anything. And you say so, don't require them to, but then there's another chunk that require them to, but the salespeople still don't do it. They still don't do it, but then they're trying to get. And so it's really not about attribution. It's about the mix and the preponderance of channels that show up. I'm not saying don't measure. Of course, in marketing, we need to understand which channels are working, how much we're spending on each channel. But so it depends on the complexity of the sale, too. Some people yeah, do have a fairly linear sale. Like this webinar sourced uh, this particular opportunity. No, you can't say that with any degree of certainty. It's, it's impossible in, in a digital landscape. What you can say is the webinar showed up 35% of the time. The webinar combined with the white paper combined with the trade show ended up being 50% of an all deal. So let's make sure that we're doing more of these types of things because clearly it's having an impact. Um, and, and you can make a look at individual yield of each of those things and, and signups and things like that and how much you're spending to improve it. But it's really shouldn't be about marketing versus sales anyway. And, and that's what attribution ends up doing. It sets marketing uh, against sales, like marketing has to prove how much revenue it brought in or pipeline just to justify its existence when really they should be working together as a team of sales to meet the overall revenue number. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm going to try to constantly jump back to this concept of turnoff experiments and say, if a company's going to look at part of their marketing, any part, whether it's digital ad spend, any part, What's the risk of turning off any part of your marketing? I mean, other than just the potential loss leads from that and you find out, oh, we were getting a decent amount of business from this and, and you need to turn it back on. Are there other risks involved that people need to consider before they do something like that? I think there's a perceived risk, but actual risk is very low. Perceived risk that we're somehow gonna miss our lead targets or we're gonna fall off our volume or maybe we're gonna lose budget or control over a channel if we stop using it. So uh, I, I think those are all perceptions. 
you know, the, the reality is um, it's not that brutal. It's not that cut and dry. And, and most sales cycles, at least in B2B, aren't that short. So um, if you stop doing things for a couple of weeks and trade off something else, you're not going to materially interrupt anything. I mean, one of the things we advise our clients on is just take a week, a quarter, stop what you're doing, get off offsite with your team and just strategize and plan, stop the presses. If marketing puts a lot of false pressure on themselves, we got to get that email out, got to get the newsletter out, got to launch this campaign. But I don't know about you as a receiver, as a customer, I'm not sitting at my desk every morning at nine with my coffee, like, where's that email? I got less marketing emails this morning. Something's wrong. Yeah. 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 So I'm I, nervous. It, I don't know why. No one cares. Like no one cares. Like it's like the first thing you got to understand as a marketer, no one cares. <laughs> right. So our job is to get them to care or, you know, and, and wake up from whatever world they're in with all their distractions and pay attention. But it's, they're not going to care just because we send out the campaign at nine in the morning versus one. Or don't, uh, they're not going to know there's a hole it, in your, huh, that's weird. I didn't receive that for a and while. <laughs> there's the data coming out now saying 15, 17, 20 touches per person before they're even going to engage with a customer. So you turn mm -hmm. off the other two channels, big deal. So that gets back to the turning off in order to turn on. And uh, we're getting into a questionable area with um, dating analogy here. But when you have to touch somebody that many times to get them interested. Um, and I, okay, so going back to that, I actually addressing that kind of benchmark thing, as we were talking about earlier, they say, oh, you, you need this many touches. And I've always tried to point out to people, you don't need that many touches. That's just the average amount of touches before one of them works. You probably only needed one touch, just the right one. Because it isn't like the first campaign you send out, nobody responds until you hit 15 and then they start pouring in. People respond the first time, the second time. Different creatives, different messaging trigger different people. So the concept that you need to poke them X amount of times. Now, maybe you build a little brand because they see your ad here and you say see your ad there and that helps. But ultimately, if you put the right message in front of them at the right time when they need the problem solved, you're solving um, you know, you need one touch, really. It's just, you don't know which one's the right one. And typically it, I guess it used to take so many touches and now it's taking more because there's so much more noise out there to get through. It's much more difficult to get the response. I, I think it depends on where the customer is in the buy cycle and when that touch happens to come out. If you're not experiencing a problem or you're not even in the market, the, the content could be off the hook. Yeah, but the product could be great. It's really Private. tough. There's not, you know, um, look, I could say my neighbor gets a swimming pool. I see an advertisement for a swimming pool. I'd love to get a swimming pool, but, you know, I know that we haven't saved for it and it's going to be at least three or four years away. So as much as I'd like to respond, as much as I think the ad's cool, uh, I'm not in a position to do it. Uh, so Isn't that the point of retargeting? Uh, retargeting is basically saying, let's do less touches, less friction because we know when the person's actually interested and we can just touch them then. But now with cookies going away, that's getting killed well, off temporarily. Well, no, I mean, look, it, cookies are going to go away on third-party sites, but you know, there's, there's still a lot of control on our own sites within publishing networks, you know, within inside app applications like, like Facebook where people consent uh, to be able to do different things, or maybe they're not aware that they're consenting, but they're, they're seeing some of these things anyway. I think the landscape is going to continue to change and evolve and maybe retargeting won't look exactly like it does today, but 
I don't see, even with all the privacy standards, I'm not seeing most of these major businesses change their business model, their revenue model. I mean, Facebook's major model is still on advertising. Um, and as long as you have an advertising model, no matter what the data protections are, there's, there's still going to be a lot of that. I do think what's possible that we might see, and you know, that's, it wouldn't surprise me, of course, if Google and Apple are working on some of their own tech to kind of combat this whole third-party cookie thing, but uh, I could also see a universal data card that the consumer themselves owns. And then we license our own data back out to vendors in exchange for getting something of return. I've seen some companies, I've talked to some companies that are, that are providing that product. I think the general idea is, um, you know, if somebody wants to start a social media site, instead of getting everybody to create the profiles, they would basically, this party would provide the profiles on a opt-in basis uh, kind of so that they would control the user's data. Something I'd like to say is the user still doesn't own the data. You don't own your information. I've been, I've been talking about this a bit recently. I think we should. And I think we should have the right. Oh, this will get good. I disagree though. There's some information you own of yours, but there's other information that you have no right to tell your neighbor. They can't remember your name. They can't remember seeing you go out, take out the trash yesterday. They can't remember what you look like. Um, just in, and I believe you also have no right to tell companies they can't remember things that you put out publicly. When you make something public, you no longer own that. It. That part I agree with. Yes, that part I agree with. And there's look, stuff you do own. People just we, think they own everything. Sure. I mean, I'm talking about uh, financial data, social security number. Like, right. Yeah, that's totally different. But uh, look, we do we do, we share all the time. We wanted to go get a mortgage because the rates are really low. So what do we do? We go out to one of these mortgage sites. We put in information about our house, our income, and stuff, and it gets sent out to hundreds of companies, we don't mind because we're getting a benefit back. We're getting all these quotes back. It's kind of what we're asking for. Yeah, you're saying, please send this you know, out. We're get, um, going through this now with our college, with our youngest daughter, you know, with uh, whether it's um, uh, the comedy app or parchment. Okay, she fills out all her interests. She's going to agree to send her grades and a lot of her activities to a bunch of schools and, and tell them in advance, yes, I'm interested in you. You can send stuff back to me. But it's a gift yet. It, right. it, you know, because it's you're trading off convenience and value for information. And we do this every day. And I'd say uh, that so. information isn't even public, though. She gave it to one entity with an understanding of how it was going to be used. She didn't post it on Facebook and say, hey, anybody who has any ideas, let me know. Um, so that's that's a, this strange area of data privacy, which is a little off topic, but we got time um, where people misconstrue everything as a data breach, if any other information is out there, even if it was already public information. And I see it really as your information is, is intellectual property. And just like much intellectual property in a non-disclosure agreement, once it's publicly available, the exactly. people, once it's in the public domain and once yeah. you voluntarily put it in the, in the public yeah. domain, then yes, I agree. You don't own it anymore. It's, it's the public. Um, but all these are trade-offs and, and you know, you, we look at the younger generation coming in who are so tech savvy and comfortable with all these different channels and, and mobility and devices, same thing. Like you're going to give to get and maybe even more comfortable than guys our age. Um, and it's just going to continue to, it's going to continue yeah. to evolve. And with everything people voluntarily put online that would be horrified when we were kids, um, you got to figure they aren't, obviously they aren't that concerned about what information about them is out there because uh, the type of stuff being posted and you're like, yeah, this person does not have any privacy concerns. 
um, at, at all. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, look, it, it's um, there are warranted concerns about protecting our privacy and data that we don't choose to share. And there are um, evildoers out there. There are hackers. There are organizations that seek to take advantage and manipulate that data for uh, nefarious reasons. And so there do need to be safeguards in place uh, to, to protect us from that and organizations. And at the same time, marketers have to adapt to, to changing times and changing conditions. And so the sales organizations in, in order to reach the customer, uh, we're in a new world. I'll bring back around again to the turnoff experiment a little bit, looking at your marketing and identifying where are you creating too much friction? Maybe that should be turned off or reduced. And then where are you just not getting the results? I think was the original um, kind of concept behind the turnoff experiment was no duh marketing. If it's not working, try something else, like <laughs> turn that off, be willing to turn off a channel. Uh, you know, back in the day it was, wow, this ad spend in the magazine, we're going to, you know, people had massive ad spends there and, and they would, you would kill it in favor of something else. Now we have so many more options though. So many things we can turn off. Um, I want to take a quick break. We'll get back to the, the turnoff experiments um, after the break, but uh, we're talking here with Jeff Pedowitz. He is the CEO and founder of the Pedowitz Group and the author of F the Funnel, a new way to engage customers and grow revenue. And uh, we'll be right back on the If You Market podcast. Are you looking for new leads or always in need of quality contacts for your marketing campaigns? But list companies and online tools are the worst, right? Well, then you've got to check out Top Data Search by Mountaintop Data. At Mountaintop Data, we're a team of weird people that actually like getting our hands dirty with sales and marketing data, and we specialize in business contact information. We compile and maintain a database of tens of millions of targeted high-quality business decision makers with emails, phone numbers, mailing address, and all the information you need. Go to topdatasearch.com and request a free account with the promo code IYM1000 like if you market the podcast here and get a free account with unlimited searches, no seat fees and 1000 free record download credits. That's topdatasearch.com. Welcome back to the if you market podcast. We've got Jeff Pedowitz here. We're talking about turnoff experiments and uh, Jeff, before we get back to the, the turnoff experiment topic, I want to dig into you, your company, where you come from, how you got, to be Jeff Pedowitz and, and what your company does for people. So um, any take take it away with any of those you want, I guess. Well, I think I got it from the parents gave me the name. So <laughs> that's how I got to be Jeff Pedowitz. But, uh, this is my third company. So right out of school, I opened up a Subway sandwich shop with my dad uh, with some money that we got from our, um, my grandfather on the mom's side. You are the yeah. first guest we've had that uh, that uh, had a Subway sandwich franchise. All right, I got to check that box. I, I am. Uh, I still have my button room somewhere. I'm a certified sandwich artist, but that's about 30 years ago now. So I don't know uh, what the expiration is on that. But uh, yeah. Okay, I want to talk Subway a little bit because that's that long ago. I would say Subway was a bit different. I remember walking into Subways as as a child, and it was it was distinct. I feel like it was much more of um like. Bread was baking, and the whole place smelled like the, this bread inside. And it's it's turned into a little bit more of a factory now. I, there may be some of their own bread baking going on and stuff, but it's really a bunch of ingredients sitting there. The old school subways, I would say, um, I like those places. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it was uh, did this in New Jersey, which was quite a challenge. 
for my dad and I because we're surrounded by Jewish and Italian delis on and everything. Mm. People and like de- yeah sandwich shops that are and you're yeah, the fast food sandwich, sandwich shop, shop. <laughs> and so uh, even then i mean the, the subway product was is just really meant to be fresh and and, and different but not could not compare to right. a Jewish deli or you know getting your italian ham and cheese on a, on a, on a roll uh but you know it, it, we learned a lot though about it i mean and i could tell you the tuna was real at least then anyway that <laughs> 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 Uh, but but learned a lot about operations, and then we we grew it to uh, 35 uh, owned and operated franchise stores. We developed three counties in in New Jersey, and then um, I sold my shares out to my father. And all my friends at that time were in software, and this is now getting into the mid 90s, and the internet and everything starting to take off with dot com companies. And they'd make fun of me when we're out at the bars on the weekend, like, "What are you going to do? Make sandwiches for us?" You're like, you know, I come join us in software. So after seven years of them needling me, I, I finally capitulated. Uh, well, you and- said, I don't know. I think I'm going to, I sold my shares. I think I'm going to live high on the hog. You guys, good luck with this dot-com bus coming up. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Well, I was still young and starry-eyed and wanted to take on the world. Uh, so I, I went to work over Computer Associates and uh, worked my way up through the company and ended up running a professional services group on a manufacturing ERP product. Um, and then from there, I worked at a couple of different startup companies in marketing and consulting. Uh, then I owned a sales training company. That was my second company. And uh, we started our family around, right around then. And uh, we, I just was working in a job. And I, I was at a company called SalesNet, which was an early competitor of Salesforce. And I was building their channel organization out with a few other people. And we discovered Elifa, which at the time was only just a couple of years old. And... Uh, you know, a lot of people will talk about getting a calling in life and the heavens opening up and up to that point, I don't know that I had a lot of divine intervention, but that sure felt like it, mm-hmm. uh, just in terms of it had everything that I loved. I, I had always loved software. I love marketing. I love sales. I love process. I love engineering. I love business. And it just kind of combined everything together. So I went to work at Eloqua uh, for a couple of years and I, and I became their VP of professional services. I was employee number 32. And uh, while there, our team created the concept of lead scoring um, and the whole model with A1, B2, C9, that kind of thing that our team came up with that um, and developed a lot of standards. And I developed um, a lot of the best practices that we trained some of the early partners on. And I best practices. Kind of, yeah, the best <laughs> practices, uh, which today, of course, are guideposts. But at the time, you know, that was the holy grail because no one else had anything like it. Uh, so I, I saw how well the partners were doing and a uh, good friend of mine, Dave Lewis, had started his company uh, a couple months prior and he was telling me how much fun he was having. And uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to go do this. So uh, after all of us started this, in the beginning, I thought it was just really going to be a lifestyle business with my wife. I could uh, get off the road, stop traveling up to Toronto, work two weeks a month, play golf, even though I never really played golf, miniature golf and that regular golf. <laughs> Uh, they, they do need business person miniature golf where it's like look i'm not a real golf player but i still yeah, want to go out right on the course talk i'm business. a two handicap on a miniature golf course <laughs> i could rock it every time absolutely so uh got our first client in in, in two weeks and then just started growing and scaling and, and before we knew it we were off to the races and uh, never really looked back so within a very short period of time we realized it could be something much, much bigger. Uh, so our business partner, Dr. Debbie Gagish, joined us uh, a few months in after we started the company. She was uh, my first customer at Eloqua. 
and uh, was my next door neighbor, uh, as it turned out. And so she lived right down the block and became really good friends. And uh, we're still going, all of us, my wife, Deb, and we brought on a few other partners over the years. So it's really been a fantastic journey as, as we've been able to work with a lot of amazing people. And our company today, we're 75 employees strong here in the US. We've got about another 40 or so internationally. And we help our companies drive more revenue in the digital world. I mean, that's really what we exist to do. And we have three major areas. We have a strategy team, tech, technology team, and an agency customer experience team. Uh, the strategy group does a lot of work with change management, processes around sales and marketing, reporting data, analytics, talent and org design structure, uh, and skill development. The technology, we work with over 600 different platforms. And we help with architecture, selection, implementation, migration, uh, managed services. And on the agency side, we design, build, and execute omni-channel campaigns to scale that will deliver better customer experience. So what's a problem that uh, a company might be having that's listening um, that you guys would, would be good at solving? Drive more revenue, drive more leads, improve conversion, um, but then lead to a customer. Is that in a specific channel? So when you say drive more leads, um, is that any marketing channel? Do you focus on social, digital ad, email? We specialize in any digital marketing channel. So there are a number of them. Uh, so mobile, social, email, um, programmatic advertising, retargeting, website, community. Um, so all, all those types of channels we engage with. And then we also work with multidimensional digital mail. Multi-dimensional mailers to send people back to a digital experience or a landing page. Multi-dimensional mailer sounds, it, it is, it's pretty cool in reality, but it kind of sounds almost cooler out of context. Multi-dimensional mail. I mean, the 3D packages with type, type, of, uh, type of stuff. Yeah, it's not a jack-in-the-box. Well, it could be, I guess, where it kind of <laughs> just comes up in your face. But, That'd be cool. Um, well, I mean, really, because people, you think direct mail, I mean, they get just the stupid mail yeah. where I get a catalog. It's just really evolved significantly over the last 10 years. It's become its own industry. Today, uh, you could just send about any, just about anything. Uh, and and uh, gift packages, coffee, custom swag, interactive experiences. People send uh, videos, you know, screens with embedded video in it. I mean, there's mm-hmm. really no limits. I think I was I was just listening to uh, before we started the episode. I was listening to um, Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. So when I hear multi-dimensional, I, my mind was in a different place when you first said that, and I was like, "Whoa, multi!" Not, oh, not, wait, interdimensional, uh, <laughs> but multi-dimensional. Yeah. I, was, yeah. I was feeling like I was in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, and saying, it's not a multiverse. Oh. You know, so all respect to Marvel, it's not multiverse. You know, yeah. No, yeah, it's just, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's really just. Um, Doing something different to get your customer to, to wake up, pay attention, do something meaningful, something thoughtful yeah. uh, that they're going to remember you by. And you can send them half a coffee mug and say like, oh, respond to this, fill out this survey to get the other half, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't know how that would work exactly <laughs> unless they somehow snap together. But yes. Uh, I do want to cut one in half and send somebody just half. No, that would be a <laughs> Yeah, try and drink out of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, but we've seen uh, the uh, one shoe. Uh, we've seen, um, you know, a golf club and then the set, we've seen, um, the remote control and then the car, uh, there's a lot of things that you can do with that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot. It seems like that is part of the explosion of physical mail after digital got saturated a bit. When people started going back to physical, I remember going to the conferences for, um, I think it was the DMA direct marketing association. 
for years and years, it was all focused around uh, physical mail advertising. And then they changed they changed the digital marketing association just as everybody started flowing back to the physical uh, stuff, and then and then then three dimensional really uh, really exploded once people said now everybody's sick of email. How can we make this uh, this physical letter actually get opened? And again, it's it's just combining different channels. And look, I know a lot of people have success with email by combining a video message. So there's a, a screen capture of the video, right, with the arrow or the triangle. You say, oh, you know, click here to get a video message personalized. So they click on it, it takes you to a landing page, the personalized message. So it's really, how do you use the channels in a meaningful way to create a good experience? And that's really where it's both the creativity of the marketing department in order to tell that story combined with the science to figure out the frequency of the message, the right channel, the right audience, the right amount of spend, the right number of touches and tactics. And, and it's gonna be a little bit different for everybody, but. Yeah, to me, I, I, I feel like I say, say this every year. I probably have. There's no better time to be in marketing. I, I just, <laughs> I, and it's, it's hard. Um, and it's, it's uh, you know, if you want to be a CMO today, it's a lot more than just the marketing. I mean, you really have to learn how to become a business leader too, if you want to be successful. But it's at the same time, it's incredibly satisfying. You know, the innovation, the change. Um, the, the power that marketing has to not only build the brand, but to drive demand um, and engage with so many different customers. Because marketing, I think more so than any department in the company has so many customers, right? The customer's your customer, but so is sales. So is right. uh, product, so is service. So is your channel, your resellers and uh, your analysts and community. I mean, you have a lot of different customers that you're trying to serve. I think we have a, an episode coming up on that exact uh, concept of, the customer's not your customer for marketing. It's really the sales department. Like that's your customer. Now through them, you're like second degree customer is the customer, but ultimately you need to please the sales department because they're the ones uh, that are that are touching. Well, the at least customer. in B2B, that's probably yeah. true. Uh, but although I certainly, certainly advocate for marketing to get out of the ivory tower and go meet your customer. I'd be amazed how, how few marketers actually go out on sales calls or have even actually talked to a customer. <laughs> you know, well, a good I, amount of them came from sales and then they didn't like talking to customers. So they went into marketing. <laughs> some, maybe some, uh, but, but it's, it's important. I mean, you really, you don't, you never truly know, as they say, someone until you walk around in their shoes. And, oh, and the customer feedback you get a, as a marketer, if you actually go and do that work can completely change and should completely change unless you happen to get lucky and guess the right approach. Um, what you're doing. A absolutely. Yes. I'm a huge advocate of that. I joke about it, but I'm a huge advocate of that. In your own business, you're working with companies, you're doing all, all different types of, of digital, uh, digital marketing for them. How much, I guess I'd say, how much autonomy do they give you to turn off certain types of campaigns and do others in instead? Is it kind of like, we want you to execute this or are you working more as an agency where you're saying, okay, this might not be working. We'd like to try this instead. It, it really depends on how we're engaging. If, if, if it's in managed services where we're responsible for the input and the outcome, and we have a lot more free reign over whatever channels we're managing. When we're consulting uh, or doing a project or advising, it's a little bit more back and forth. So it's like, hey, look, we our best, our, we recommend that you turn this off and turn this on and reduce your spend over here. Right, right. 
makes sense. Um, so how often do you, I mean, I guess if you're only consulting and advising, it's not like you're turning off your, uh, your business with them. You're just recommending they, they're turning off something that they're, that they're doing in particular in, internally. Um, yeah, but even sometimes when you're responsible for managed services, you still have to consult. Uh, we have a client right now that we're responsible for generating a significant amount of uh, monthly leads for. And uh, so far, some of the advertising that we were investing in was not having uh, some of the conversion that we would like to see. So we turned off the advertising and told the client we were turning off the advertising as we were regrouping and changing some of the tactics. Uh, and, you know, understandably so, the client still wants the leads. They still want the demand and they want to know, know that, okay, that's fine, but what's coming next? And how do we make sure that we're getting on track? So, it, you know, when we're in a service business and a service mentality and we serve the customer, it's not just about turning things on and off. It's about expectations. It's about communication and assuring that we're all in alignment to get to the outcome together. I mean, I guess when you're working as kind of like an outsourced marketing company back to the, who's your real customer, that really does show that your customer is the sales department, because that is who you're working for in your client company is, I mean, you're working for that company, not their end customer. So it's, it's the same relationship, whether you're, an internal marketing department, or whether you're uh, an agency working for someone else, really, the it flows through to the customer, and you need to know them and, and take care of them. But ultimately, in the context of what your actual customer wants, which is an, an internal thing. Um, so, one last thing here before we wrap it up: um, when it comes to marketing channels, you guys focus all on digital marketing. So let's keep it to that. Mm-hmm. But what is your favorite digital marketing channel? Yeah, honestly, I don't know that I have them. Uh, it's, it's, uh, but I'm fascinated with how new channels can be applied. Uh, I personally, maybe I've watched a total of one TikTok video. It's just not my thing. Um, I know a lot of people enjoy it and love it. Uh, no value judgment. But I've seen a lot of B2B marketers now t- use that channel just like they've used Instagram and have a tremendous amount of success with it, reaching their audience. So, I am excited about every time there's a new channel that's available and seeing how it works into the mix and and whatever's new. Yeah. It serves different demographics, you know, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, hard to believe Facebook is, uh, it's 17 years old now. So it just seems like an ancient uh, relic compared to, and it's, and it's just watching it through the eyes of, uh, my children because our youngest doesn't use sales Facebook. She considers that to be for old people. You know, so she'll use Snapchat, Snapchat, TikTok, Instagram, um, where uh, and my son really dabbles in Facebook, but my older one will be on it uh, all, all the time. So I think it just depends on, you know, who you are, what your interests are. But yeah, I don't, I don't know that I have a personal favorite. I love whatever's new because really whatever's new is typically, it's created for a reason, but also it usually gives you the best value because they don't have the, you know, Facebook when it was new was a great value because when you posted something, they didn't limit who saw it. Everybody sees it. They didn't make you pay for stuff. Everything was, you know, they're, they're trying to give you exposure in order to get exposure themselves when they're new. So it's always less expensive when something's new, when every marketer jumps on and there's a bidding war, suddenly now it's, it's, um, it loses a lot of its value. So, um, that's true. So, Best yeah. marketing platform is whatever's new. There you go. Let's go with that. I could be the next uh, podcast we do together. Which goes, you you alluded to this, but we didn't quite say it earlier. And it kind of goes to the, the idea that within marketing, 
you can never set it and forget it um, because marketers always flock to whatever's working, which causes it to not work because of both the friction and the, um, the overbidding for whatever that thing is, I guess. And then it becomes whatever's new. Where are people not? Where are people not? Where are your customers that all other marketers haven't saturated already, kind of? Um, so that's a, that's a great uh, connection to the whatever's new there. Absolutely. All right. Um, Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. This has been great. I want to um, encourage people to go check out the show notes on this. We'll have uh, a handful of links to Jeff, to his company here. Anything, um, anything you'd like to throw out for where people can find you? We'll have your website, of course, your LinkedIn profile. Um, anything in particular going on that you want to throw out there, Jeff? Uh, well, just we're, we're always looking forward to having great conversations with, with customers. And um, if you'd like to find out more about how we could potentially help you, uh, feel free to come to pedowitzgroup.com. You can also uh, get a copy of uh, my book at jeffpedowitz.com. I'm out on LinkedIn and my email is really easy. It's jeff at petowitzgroup.com. So look forward to hearing from you guys. Excellent. And that was uh, what, F, um, F, F content F marketing? Uh, F the funnel. Oh, F the funnel. F content marketing was another, I uh, guess we had in the past. Um, the F the funnel. Line. F stands for forget about it. That's right. Forget about the funnel. Forget about it, huh? <laughs> Forget about the funnel. All right. Uh, you can find the show notes and more information on Jeff Pedowitz on ifyoumarket.com. And uh, please share the show. Um, you know, find our posts on social. We're posting on LinkedIn all the time with little clips. We'll have video clips from this show there. Uh, if you want to see Jeff, um, I guess I was going to say live and in person, but it's not exactly live and in person. If you want to see a video, we'll, we take out little chunks and throw it up on social there for you. And uh, on behalf of the If You Market team and Jeff Pedowitz of the Pedowitz Group, thank you for listening to the If You Market podcast, where we believe if you market the shit out of it with whatever's working, they will come.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.